Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Denis Villeneuve's Dune, perhaps the biggest film of 2021. Adapted from the iconic sci-fi novel by Frank Herbert, it stars Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides, the young heir to an aristocratic dynasty in the distant future. When his family takes charge of the desert planet Arrakis, Paul embarks upon a messianic journey of transformation, leading a story that combines mysticism, political allegory, and interplanetary war. So we previously did an episode that talked about David Lynch's Dune, the infamous film from the 1980s, and we also touched upon Alejandro Jodorowsky's unfilmed Dune, which is like this really uh, influential sci-fi text. So head on over to that episode uh, to learn about those, because this is going to be an in-depth one about the new film. We do not have time to get into David Lynch. There's a lot to talk about. This is a really intriguing and exciting movie. It's also a problematic movie, which is more or less inevitable um, with Dune. So we will be kind of talking about the various racism critiques that have been uh, put forward about this movie. But we're kind of going to start with the more general chat about the filmmaker and the casting and like the amazing production design and stuff. Morgan, I'm looking forward to talking about this one. Yes, we have been looking forward to this movie for years at this point because it was supposed to come out a year ago and then the pandemic happened and I did not enjoy the David Lynch movie at all I was having a conversation I mean, it's with not a good <laughs> no it's not good I was talking to a friend of mine about it recently and she was like did you have to just like pause it like a lot because it was so boring and I was like yes I paused it every 15 minutes because I just couldn't stand it but it sort of perversely made me even more excited for this one because I was like, well, that movie looks good. Well, it's and also like this movie is extremely character-based, whereas, you know, Lynch's Dune is the opposite of character-based. <laughs> yes. Um, I have no familiarity with the books. Like, I know they exist, but before seeing the Lynch version, like, I knew literally nothing about these novels. And I went and saw this film at an IMAX screening for the first time in, like, I mean, maybe since Dunkirk, like it's been a long time. And it basically like melted my face off of my body. <laughs> I was just like, this is amazing. I love the movies. I mean, this is a fantastic film. If you enjoy things being extremely large, oh boy, are the things large in this movie. There's a lot of bigness. Well, we're obviously going to talk about Denis Villeneuve a lot because he is really the star of this film, along with uh, Timmy Chalamet. And I think Villeneuve is a really interesting filmmaker because I always really admire the craft that goes into his movies, but I don't usually actually like them that much. Arrival is the sort of primary exception. I've only seen that once, and I saw it, I believe, the day after Donald Trump was elected. So that was a weird memory <laughs> for me. Like, great movie, but it kind of got some weird associations. And then films like Sicario, which I think is really just like an evil movie, but the direction of that film is completely astounding. That was the first time I think I was kind of aware of him as a filmmaker. And Blade Runner 2049, I we talked about that film too, and I really do not like that movie. I also do not. <laughs> I do not and like didn't it. even find it particularly like pleasing to look at but it's obvious that a certain level of skill has gone into making it and in the reception of this film there have been a lot of comparisons pretty inevitably to Christopher Nolan just because like they're both 
filmmakers who were working on this massive scale in the sort of sci-fi genre space, right? But I think there's a huge difference between them, which is that Nolan is such an auteur for better and for worse, right? Like there are certain hangups and obsessions of his that show up in all of his movies. And some of those are interesting, like his fixation with time. Some of them are like, he can't write women, which is kind of unfortunate. Whereas Villeneuve, I feel like I have trouble finding a common thread in terms of like themes and interests through his movies. I'm sure they feel really personal to him because he's spending years of his like life making all of them. But he feels more like a really accomplished craftsman than someone who has this like artistic vision of what he needs to say. And Dune is a really interesting progression in his career because he has been obsessed with these novels since he was a teenager and like dreamed of adapting them when he was like 14 years old. And so even if I'm not watching this thinking like, oh, obviously this is like Denis Villeneuve's like personal obsession, I feel like there is in some indirect way a more personal quality to the movie because it's just something he's so completely fanatical about that I think really benefits the film. Yeah. And um, we can both recommend there's a New York Times profile of Villeneuve that kind of goes into his background. He's French Canadian. Um, he's like a longtime cinephile. And he just seems like a nice person, you know, which isn't, you know, enormously common in this general field as a professional. <laughs> and also very collaborative, obviously, as you can kind of tell from the fact that, you know, he works with a lot of the same people over and over again, as many people do, but also he makes different projects with a certain flexibility and input from other people involved in the project. Um, yeah, I mean, he seems nice, which kind of also is one of those things which makes it sort of doubly intriguing that in all of the films I've seen of his and from what Morgan has told me about Sicario, he just like continually has like blind spots that a lot of people find very offensive. And it's not the same blind spot in every film, you know? <laughs> well, my theory about him, and I obviously do not know this man, so like who knows? My theory about him is that it's really not coming from him. Is probably more so in this film, right? Because this is so much of a passion project for him. But I think his movies are unbelievably dictated by script as opposed to someone like Nolan, who obviously is writing his own movies, whereas Villeneuve is normally working off of scripts that other people have written. So you can go from something like Arrival, which has this wonderful female protagonist character who's not particularly sexualized in any way. Like, it's more about her profession. Obviously, there's stuff about her personal life in that movie, but it's really about her job. And then go to Play Runner 2049, which has all of this just like gross stuff about women in it. And I remember us talking about it at the time that like with certain directors, I think the example I used was Tarantino. Like I just get a gross feeling watching the movie. Like there's something about, and like, again, who knows? Like this is just the vibe I get from the movie, but like I kind of recoil and feel like, ugh, like there's something bad about whoever's making this. And with Villeneuve, even with Blade Runner 2049, which like, I really hated. I, I didn't have a reaction about like that about him. I was kind of just like, this movie sucks. And it's interesting, like that profile that you mentioned was great. Everyone in it 
was just like, he's the greatest man alive. Which, of course, they're not going to be like, he sucks. But it seemed pretty genuine. And I listened to an episode of um, Roger Deakins' podcast, which is a wonderful listen, with Jake Gyllenhaal. And they both worked with Denis Villeneuve. And the way they talk about him, they were just like, oh, Denis, well, you know, you know what he's like. Oh, <laughs> what a I sweetie. love that man so much. <laughs> like, and again, clearly in a sincere mm-hmm. way. So I think he is just like a nice man who probably is not massively politically evolved because otherwise he would not have, you know, made Blade Runner 2049, but isn't like full of gross shit in his brain. It's kind of just happening. It's kind of the reverse know? of Joss Whedon. <laughs> yes. Correct. But yeah, I really, I want to talk about all of the characters because like the casting in this is just like chef's kiss. Um, But before, I'll just let the audience know who the co-writers are. Denis Villeneuve obviously is one of the three co-writers, but the other two are two very different men. Eric Roth is 76 years old. He is a iconic Hollywood screenwriter who has made such films as Forrest Gump and the recent A Star is Born um, and obviously producer as well. And then John Spates is a hack for whom I have no respect whatsoever. His credits include Doctor Strange, the recent mummy film that was like panned and Passengers, which is the, you know, who's obviously that film's greatest claim to fame is being probably one of our like most loved, hated films in our podcast. Uh, Absolute stinker of a movie. So when he was like announced to write this, I was like, okay, why did you do that? And uh, who knows who was doing which parts of this movie? I found it very well written. I will be reading a quote from John Spates later in this podcast, which will confirm more elements of my lack of respect from him, but... (laughs) Well, he, I believe, is the first credited writer on that, like, title card in the credits. Mm -hmm. And Roth is the last one. And Roth does a lot of rewrites of, like, major prestige studio films. Like, he was definitely brought in to do some rewriting on A Star is Born. I'm sure in collaboration with Bradley Cooper, because he was directing the movie. But... Part of what has made him such a like legendarily established figure is that he will do that on a lot of like major projects is come in and sort of do a polish. And I strongly suspect that that was what was going on in this case, because uh, as as we know, John Spates, meh, like maybe not. So who knows? But that would be my theory about the sequence of events. But yeah, let's move on to the cast, which is just like stacked. What a list of people. (laughs) I mean, it was fascinating to watch this basically like in the same week as Marvel's new film, The Eternals, which I just found to be a real stinker because these are two big blockbusters. Obviously, they're aiming for different things artistically. Dune is a much more adult film in a lot of ways. Um, It's less kind of lighthearted and entertainment based, which is the Marvel brand. But they're both like two hours and 40 minutes long and they both have really big ensemble casts. And the way that Eternals introduces its ensemble cast is just unbelievably boring and shit. They're like, they will come onto screen and like announce their name and explain what their powers are. And they'll get like one character point, like they're reading off their Wikipedia page or something. It's terrible. Whereas this movie, it like there's so much kind of emotional sophistication and backstory that you get for all of these characters and it's a very high caliber of actors as well but like that's often true of a lot of bad movies 
you know, the protagonist is this guy who on paper could easily be described as the kind of classic chosen one hero who's this young white guy who's just the very special boy who's going to save the universe with his superpowers and what have you. Uh, Obviously, the narrative is like more complex than that. But even within that one character, I was really kind of fascinated by the way that they introduce him because obviously Timothy Chalamet has kind of cornered the market in these troubled teen coming of age type guys while also having like a sense of humor around that archetype but Paul Atreides is characterized in this really interestingly morally ambiguous way they don't kind of go overboard with making this obvious but I think it's pretty clear right from the get-go kind of how privileged he is and it's not just sort of like oh he's a prince you know which is the true of lots of characters in many films like many fantasy and sci-fi movies they really kind of acknowledge the fact that like he's arrogant he's not necessarily making decisions out of a desire to like save people and help people like there is definitely a comparison between the Atreides family who are kind of the nice colonizers and then the Harkonnens who are just like a bunch of monsters but the film also is very aware of the fact that like what they are doing to Arrakis is not good like they are going to this planet where the invading force is by nature disrupting the ecosystem and disrupting the lives of the local population, which is the Fremen. And the Harkonnens were just like fully oppressing them. When the Atreides family shows up, you know, the the leader of the family, played by Oscar Isaac, Duke Leto Atreides, which is Timothy Chalamet's dad, is kind of like, I want to be the person who works with the locals. You know, he's the community police officer of space colonizers. (laughs) And... You know, you're kind of like, yeah, this is the correct approach. But also the actual correct approach is not to conquer this planet. And Paul Atreides' journey, kind of as the film progresses, is he's following his father's footsteps in that he has this sympathy for the Fremen. And also he's getting these psychic dreams that are kind of telling him to befriend the Fremen. And there's all this stuff to do with him having this destiny, which is kind of preordained and seeing the future and this sort of thing. But also, like, the decisions he makes are, like, about revenge and taking charge of stuff because he has decided that he is the person who should be in charge because he is the new Duke Atreides. So that is not kind of the traditional hero's journey, like, morally impressive arc that you would get from, like, a Harry Potter type. Well, to me, the most telling and interesting moment in this sort of trajectory of this character was midway through the film there's a scene where he is kind of realizing that he is going to have to adopt this role as this kind of messiah figure for this planet, which also the movie slash book makes clear is because the Bene Gesserit, who are the like space nuns of who, which his mother is like a part of that order have been like, yeah, we've been doing like, you know, human like biological engineering for like, decades yeah it's all kind of genetic experiments and it's like oh timothy chalamet is like the perfect gene pool combination (laughs) right as opposed to him just having this like thing handed down from god to him that makes him so special it's it's all calculated having this moment where he's having these visions and also because of circumstance has realized he's gonna have to be this person and he basically just has a panic attack like he is not interested in this like he's really not happy about it And then basically in the next scene is like, yeah, I'm just going to be the emperor of the entire universe. (laughs) It's like, it's some classic 19 year old decision making. (laughs) Right. Which on the one hand, it's like you're a teenager and you have no idea what you're talking about. On the other hand, 
you have sympathy for him because this is a ridiculous position for anyone to be in. And the only way to really deal with it is just to kind of go in this sort of like manic swing from one thing to another. On the other hand, it suggests a perhaps darker side to this character that we may see in the future. And like, I haven't read these books, but my understanding spoilers for like the series of Dune that, you know, things don't go great for Paul in the long run. (laughs) And I think the fact that, Again, the series is largely a critique of this kind of narrative, despite the fact that it spawned so many other iterations of it, makes this way more interesting than it might otherwise be. Yeah. And the parents are just subverting everything we're used to seeing in Hollywood, because I have lost count of the number of times I've complained while reviewing blockbusters about everything being focused around daddy issues, but not an interesting way. And mums being just erased from the narrative. The worst one being, to my memory, the Star Trek reboot movies, which decide to focus on Captain Kirk's appearance for no reason, because that's like not a relevant or interesting part of his original backstory. But they do that by like having him just be obsessed with his father's legacy and then like erasing his still living mother from the story. <laughs> and it's just like, I hate this. But like with this, First of all, it's like an extremely rare blockbuster where the mother is kind of the primary parent who has like the most screen time, but also the relationship between Paul and his father, Duke Leto, is really nice. And it's a great role for Oscar Isaac, who is incandescently beautiful in this film with his luxuriant beard. And, um, you know, he is playing this sort of like, you know, idealized colonizer figure, which I found really interesting because it's like, you know, he sucks, but like, the film is simultaneously being like, oh, this guy's not so bad. And also, of course he is, because he's like (laughs) part of the whole structure. Um, But there's this great conversation between him and Paul, like in the first act before they're leaving their home planet, where he's essentially saying like, if you don't feel like you're able to take over the family legacy, I'll still love you because you're my son, which is the opposite of like every conflict (laughs) in these movies usually. And then Paul's mother, Lady Jessica, who is not married to... Duke Leto, she's actually a concubine. So there's this interesting kind of power imbalance in that relationship, which isn't really, like, you don't really know that unless you've read the books until quite late on in the movie where, like, he says, you know, I should have married you. But she simultaneously doesn't have the same power as the actual members of the Atreides household and also has this massive power as a subsidiary member of the Bene Gesserit order. And she is clearly like much smarter than her partner. Like she is this very calculating person who has been very strategic. And the reason why she has a son instead of a daughter is like perhaps partly because like, you know, she loves her her partner and like wants Duke Leto to have the son that he wants. But also maybe she wants to take control of this destiny herself because she knows that it has to be a boy that has to be the messiah, which is part of a whole bunch of like gender issues from the books, which I'm not familiar with, but sounds like it could have gone in a deeply bad direction. So they've clearly like from the interviews with the people who made this film, one of their main focuses in constructing the narrative and the kind of casting balance in this film was to promote the female characters as much as possible, which I simultaneously admire and find quite amusing because they did this great job with Lady Jessica, who is the second build character and is just, Rebecca Ferguson just gets like a lot of interesting, subtle acting work done in this movie. And then there's a couple of other female characters. Zendaya is obviously highly publicized, but she has an amusing lack of, you know, <laughs> lack of screen time because she only really shows up in like the final 10 minutes. Uh, Charlotte Rampling gets a fun little cameo as like an old crone. Love it. 
And then they gender switched one character from the main Dune cast, um, who is this ecologist who is already on Arrakis, who is played by the British actress Sharon Duncan Brewster, who's great, loved that character. <laughs> but like they made such a fuss over like, we've made sure that L- Lady Jessica has a big role and we've gender flipped this one character. And then like all of the extras are like all men. <laughs> I mean, that feels pretty right to me. For the society yeah. that they are depicting, Yeah, frankly. I mean, it makes sense to me, but, like, they also have that with, like, the Fremen. And apparently the Fremen is, like, the men and the women are basically meant to, like, live equally. And then at the end, they just have, like, basically, it's all guys and then Zendaya. Yeah, I mean, with the Fremen, it'll be more interesting to see what happens with the next movie. Mm. And one of the things that was more in the Lynch movie that hopefully will be more in the sequel to this is that the... Bennett Gesserit have this like real power, but they're kind of in this like cloistered group, right? Yeah. Not cloistered in a physical sense. Like they are going around to all these different courts and like having meetings with leaders. But one of the sort of interesting things about the way this world is set up is that this like small group of women has this enormous amount of power, but otherwise it seems like the power structures kind of replicate yeah like traditional patriarchal society right which i think is pretty interesting it doesn't get explored a tremendous amount in this movie but there's a lot of dune so yes. and it's like they do a really good job with just like the balance of screen time yeah i mean there are many actors we still have to mention but like i felt like i got a great sense of at who everybody was Oscar Isaac is really not on screen for very much time at all, but obviously he's one of the best actors alive, so he can do a lot with a little. But you really get a sense of A, him being like a good dad, and also, as you mentioned, that sense of him kind of being like, well, I'm going to do the right thing, but having no sense of real self-awareness about the fact that like, actually, this is not, this is not good. And also kind of the sense that he is almost quite sincere about the idea of like it's the Atreides family's duty you know he actually kind of buys into this idea of feudal loyalty and duty which obviously like the Harkonnens the villains do not they clearly just don't give a shit of course we should talk about the Harkonnens in a minute but before I forget Jason Momoa this is like the ultimate Jason Momoa role this guy can do one thing he has amazing charisma he's a great action star And if you can get a character whose entire role is to just have a ton of charisma and be really big, like this guy does not need any character development whatsoever because you've just put Jason Momoa in that location. (laughs) And like, especially the the relationship he has with Paul is fantastic. It's just this like really cute sort of hero worship thing where they clearly know each other really well. And there's just no need to explain any of that because it's just all in Jason Momoa's screen presence. And then you could put him in the film and then remove him and leave all of the complexity to Rebecca Ferguson. <laughs> yeah, it is a great balance. I think she is really fantastic in this movie. I mean, she's a great actor, period. But she is just maybe the best performance, though everybody's really good. Momoa, I've never I've never felt really one way or the other about him. I haven't seen him in that many things. And in this, I was just like, great, love it. Like, <laughs> you know? And I don't think we've really said much about Chalamet as a performer. I saw something before I watched the movie, like just someone on Twitter who, I apologize, I've forgotten who it was, pointing out that his like physical acting and like like facial expressions are 
like really fantastic and yeah. his vocal tone maybe not so much and so then i was thinking about that watching and i concur his voice kind of always sounds the same but he's so good at the other stuff it kind of doesn't matter and i just found him obviously we've talked about him in other episodes like i think he's just fantastic but i was so completely emotionally invested in that yeah. character and by extension the movie right because it's all about him and you know we've described some of the nuances of the characterization but i just found i just really thought he was fantastic and the sense of like vulnerability was which is what one of the things he's particularly good at was really extreme in a few of the scenes and that is so not what like male action yes. stars are usually asked to well, do so to me it's the difference between a blockbuster adventure protagonist and a young adult novel protagonist yeah. because his entire arc is very much in the young adult novel category here and his power is that we are obviously really emotionally invested in him and they balance that with kind of the fact that he is quite a flawed character and he's quite morally ambiguous and also the way they sort of start to unveil his powers feels cool right because it's like the whole point of this sort of concept is you are meant to feel this sense of like, oh, it's really cool that he knows how to do up his still suit, even though he's not gone to Arrakis, which is like classic, like white savior nonsense stuff. But like all of those little details are executed in like a subtle and effective way that just makes you think like, cool. I completely love this. It's very exciting that he's a special boy, but he's not like so special that he just feels just really annoying. And like you said, yeah, he's not like the classic blockbuster man archetype the magic of timothy i think the fact and people have been talking and writing about this too i really think the fact that he's so scrawny yeah has a huge effect on how he like makes people emotionally invested in him i mean not that's something he's doing per se but it adds to the sense of him as like a really young person like he again feels really like a kid in this like he's 25 years old but he's playing a teenager, even if they don't specify that. And so much of what's going on in the movie are these physical fights or just like moments of physical peril. And he obviously is really fit and has like physical fight training. Like the climax of the movie is him fighting somebody. But on the other hand, you're kind of like, he's just this scrawny guy. <laughs> like It's not like he's Jason Momoa, right? And also the way they do his clothes are great. It's like he does have some quite cool outfits but the um the sort of main uniform they have him in they've tailored it so that it makes it more obvious that he's really skinny because it's slightly baggy so it's more like the sort of teenager in his first suits kind of zone yeah and it's just really refreshing to have like a huge movie star especially in a movie like this who just looks like that yeah as opposed to all these like roided out guys who no one looks like in real life ever at all and I mean, no one looks like Timothy Chalamet either, but he's, he's way more like someone you might actually encounter than like what most movie stars are forced to do to themselves these days. And all the teenage girls love him. It's like Hollywood. Hello. I mean, it's a classic type. <laughs> to every generation you know? comes a twink, you know? Yeah, correct. We should talk about the Harkins. Although I basically just, this was the only, I loved this movie, as you can probably yeah. tell. I found the Harkonnen stuff uh, terrible. That yeah. was the only part that I was just like, I'm actively on. Un- they don't they like didn't this. really get much development in this. Like their whole job is to be repulsive and hateful, which I feel like is 
quite easy to execute and doesn't require much complexity, which is very much what they have here. They're just like full on villains. Um, the boss is played by Stellan Skarsgård and then his sort of second in command is played by Dave Bautista. Both great actors. Dave Bautista just doesn't really have much to do, but like he's good at what he does. He's just like a yelling bad man. And then Stellan Skarsgård plays Baron Harkonnen, who is the, the main villain. And I just don't, like, it's it's a difficult situation, right? Because like this guy's defining traits in the book and also in David Lynch's Dune are that he is extremely fat, he is gluttonous, and he is a gay, possibly pedophile pervert. So in in this movie, they removed these sexual elements, but they keep him as this sort of dehumanized, extremely fat figure. And the film is like obsessed with his his body, you know, not to the extent that David Lynch was, but with David Lynch, it was almost more excusable because like David Lynch is obsessed with extreme bodies of all types. I mean, it was still extremely offensive in that film, but it felt like more fitting there. But in this movie, which is like almost all about like conventionally attractive people, you then have this villain where it's like, isn't it disgusting that like he's really fat and isn't it disgusting that he doesn't walk anywhere he uses his like floaty chair thing and isn't it disgusting that he's this glutton who's like eating food in this really like way with all these sound effects and stuff and it's like it's all just like fat phobic and revolting and it's like if you don't have that element to him then it's not really the same character as in the book but also if you can like just cast a completely racially diverse cast for all these characters who were different races in the book and you can like gender flip people, you can find a way to do this character, which is not like deeply insulting. But that is like a blind spot that Hollywood absolutely has not even, it's not crossed their minds yet. Like it's not encountered them. They're like, of course, this is how this villain should be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least in the Lynch version, like that stuff was that all of the stuff in that part of the movie was like profoundly offensive, but it was weird, yeah. which made it interesting, even if it was also gross. And in this, I was just like, there is nothing interesting about this and it's offensive. So, I mean, like, it felt like, it really felt to me like Denis Villeneuve is fundamentally much less interested in the Harkonnens than the other guys, right? Because like in terms yes, of the production absolutely. design, the production design in this film is unbelievably incredible which we will talk about next because it's great great stuff but like there is so much kind of detail going on in all of the stuff to do with the Atreides family and then Arrakis and the big sort of palace fort that they move into in Arrakis and then when you go to the Harkonnens they do have a distinctive aesthetic like it's a lot more gothic it's darker it's more industrial which is all like much more predictable visual cliches for a villain than like the other elements of the movie but like it's not enough of a contrast because Denis Villeneuve just loves to do like a big brutalist block of concrete that is like his personal aesthetic which I fully respect and is very recognizable here but they needed to have done something much more distinctive for the Harkonnens because like a bright color scheme weird design of some kind some sort of like physicality that feels repulsive or threatening one of those things, you know, I am not a production designer, but like this was not interesting enough. No. Yeah. Again, if you're boring and offensive, that's a real problem. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we, don't, we don't like that. <laughs> um, but let's talk more about the technical and artistic non-acting accomplishments of the film, because so much of what is 
like seductive and overwhelming about the movie is to do with that stuff. And as I said, I saw it in IMAX and I think a lot of the kind of marketing and reception of the movie has, which is available in America. If you have HBO, like you can watch it on your television, but it's been doing really well at the box office here and all over the world. And everyone's saying, well, you should see it in IMAX. You should see it on a huge screen which, like, you should. <laughs> like, obviously, if you have to watch it on your TV, like, it is what it is. But this is a, more than any movie I've seen since the pandemic. This is the one where I was just like, oh, my God. It's like, truly <laughs> epic. The sense of size, the emotional impact of the visual effects that you're getting. I mean, I say visual effects. There's, like, obviously a lot of this is CGI, but it's also one of those movies where the director is actually really interested in practical stuff. So a ton of the main sets you see in this are like fully built. The one that was the wildest to me is, if you can remember in like the the third act, they go to the settlement where Dr. Kynes uh, is being like hanging around with the Fremen. And there's this set that's like this giant sort of silo, enormous concrete like drum, which is like, it looks like it's like, like about a thousand feet across. It's real. <laughs> They built it. It's like a big tent that they've like spray painted to look like concrete. And it's just like, it's unbelievable. It's like they found like some kind of secret bunker, but they fucking built this whole thing. And it it really adds to like the scope of the movie, not to state the obvious. So like the production designer is this guy named Patrice Vermette, who has worked with Denis Villeneuve on like a bunch of stuff. He he was the production designer on Arrival and Sicario. And his work here, along with, I'm going to go ahead and assume a team of at least 500 people, <laughs> um, <laughs> is just amazing. The vehicles in this film are fantastic. And not only do the vehicles look extremely cool and real, Denis Villeneuve like understands how to show us how they function on screen. So instead of it just being like, for example, in Jupiter Ascending, there's really cool spaceships, but it's really obvious that what's happened is the filmmakers have hired a really talented and interesting artist who has made a piece of co- cool concept art, which then is like animated and put on screen. And in this, they've got like the extra step of like Denis Villeneuve being a nerd who's like, okay, we've got to have these ornithopters. We're going to physically build the entire ornithopter so it's like a real vehicle people can get into. And I'm going to shoot it in such a way that you instinctively understand precisely how this machine works, even though it's like significantly different from a helicopter because it's like a little bug thing. Very cool. You know, the big palace they move into in Arrakis is specifically designed to look as if it can withstand 500 mile per hour desert winds. So it's this giant like concrete edifice. And then you just have loads of smaller details like the carpets were my fave. After Morgan saw the movie, I messaged her immediately was like, did you see the carpets? And she was like, no. But then she remembered right at the beginning when like the herald comes along to announce the Atreides family that they've got like a new duty. (laughs) They like unroll the red carpet for this spaceship but it's not a red carpet. It's like a beautifully patterned carpet, which to me is like the kind of detail which most people just don't even consider, but it adds this sense of royalty because if there's one thing that royals love, it's a fucking patterned carpet that everyone's going to stomp all over. And also in terms of the futuristic visual world building, one of the things from the novels is that there's no computers. Like computers are outlawed because of this like war that happened 10,000 years ago or whatever. So there's loads of technology, but it's all based around this sort of engine thing that's never really clearly explained and so you've got this kind of like floating orb which is never explained in the movie which is like there in several scenes and you're just like cool orb I guess I'll just never know what that is (laughs) 
And then there's this one character whose job is to be the calculator. And you can kind of tell from his job, like he explains stuff, he does really fast maths and he does this thing where his eyes sort of flash white, like he's channeling something. And even if you've not read the books, I think like you can get enough from that, from context clues that you can draw a line between, oh, this guy is like the human calculator and oh, the way their spaceships work is that people have to take hallucinogens and you know, you tie that into like the experience of the people on Arrakis who are inhaling the dust, um, who are inhaling the spice and then they're getting visions and stuff. So, you know, there's lots of chat from old school Dune fans where it's like, oh, people are never going to understand this. It's so complex. And like, you're not getting everything out of it unless you've read the books. And I was watching this and I was like, I can think in my brain and they've actually done like a really good job of connecting enough of these elements that I can put those together and form in my mind. Here's how that kind of technology and spirituality is working as a cohesive whole. Well, and I was not processing all of that while watching. Like, I think the human calculator stuff is definitely not that clearly explained. But it doesn't need to be at all. It doesn't matter at all. It's he's <laughs> just like he's just like exposition man. It's like when you hire a legendary character actor and he stands there and does some exposition. Um this is Stephen McKinley Henderson who plays Thufir Hawat. And he even has a fun little accessory where at one point he shows up with a parasol and apparently it's just the actor had that parasol on set because it was fucking hot. And it's like love it. Love the detail. <laughs> yeah. And so that kind of stuff, if you do really think about it or read stuff afterward, like, okay, then sure. But like, it totally doesn't matter. I did feel like having seen the Lynch one was probably a bit helpful just in terms of like having a sense of where the plot was going to go and like certain like world building stuff that I was familiar with as a result of that movie. Although that movie is also like totally bizarre and skims over a lot of things because it's so, has to compress so much information. But I also... Like, if you like science fiction at all, by which I mean, like, have any exposure to any science fiction, like, period, I cannot imagine that this movie would be particularly difficult to understand. I mean, the narrative is is simple. All of the emotional stuff is extremely engaging. So regardless of how much you're understanding, which is probably most of it, because as I said, it's simple, you're still going to, like, be following it in your heart because everyone is reacting in a way that feels very kind of familiar and easier to understand because it's a family drama. And the movie is a spectacle. Like it is supposed to feel awesome in the like original sense of the word, right? And that ties into the production design and also very much to the cinematography, which um, was done by Greg Frazier, who is a genius cinematographer. I always think of him as the guy who did the cinematography for Bright Star, which is how I first heard of him. <laughs> but he's had a very illustrious career since then. Um, he also shot Zero Dark Thirty, which I know is a movie that is very controversial, but like aesthetically looks amazing. And then in a blockbuster zone did um, Rogue One. I just think he's unbelievably talented. And this movie looks so good. Obviously, this all the design stuff ties into that, but... Just the way the camera is shooting everything is stunning. And the sense of all of these huge buildings, these big ships, everything kind of moving in concert combined with this stunning cinematography and the sound, which we will talk about later, is designed to provoke this feeling of just like awe in you, right? And so 
It is really emotionally involving. I don't think it's particularly hard to follow narratively, but I think part of the reason, a large part of the reason that everyone's saying, like, you have to go see this in IMAX or just, like, on a big screen is that it is such an immersive experience aesthetically, right? And the bigness of the movie, it's not just that, oh, there's big stuff and it's loud or whatever. It's that the bigness really feels significant to you, which ties into the themes of the film, right? Like, it just all feeds into itself in such a smart and effective way. And there are some, like, substantial problems with this movie, which we are going to get into shortly. But as I was watching it, I was kind of like, rationally, I could critique this, but, like, I don't care. Because it's just so much that it kind of is just, like, pushing all of that aside. Like, it was such an incredible experience to watch it. I mean, a friend of mine sent me a promotional featurette that Denis Villeneuve did for, you know, Variety or something, where it's like, he spends 17 minutes breaking down the Gomjabar scene where, like, Timothy Chalamet puts his hand in the magic box and gets tortured, which is, like, a four-minute scene or something. You really get, like, a sense of, like, how complicated a director's job is and also how good he is at this, because it's like he's kind of talking about, like, cinematography and editing choices that are on screen for, like, one and a half seconds, and he is spoken with the editor to like explain how he wants to like elicit this emotion which will lead into the next emotion you're going to get for the next like 14 seconds and like all of these kind of directorial and acting choices and like the way the sound works at certain places in the room I was just like okay I'm fully suckered in I know you're promoting shit here and you're probably campaigning for an Oscar or something but I've watched a lot of these and this is a very good and interesting feature <laughs> yeah well and that ties into the like I mean obviously Again, with the craftsmanship stuff from him, like, he is just an obsessive, which you have to be as a director, but, like, to an extreme degree and really knows what he's talking about. But also, with the Dune stuff specifically, like, he has just thought about this for decades. And, like, completely, (laughs) it's like, I have thought about every single angle of all of these different groups and how all this would work and how all of it should look, which makes the whole thing feel so realized right because it's not just him being like i guess that would look cool like he has a rationale for every single part of it because he's such a fanatic before we get into the controversy why don't we talk just briefly about the costumes which will sort of lead into that yeah why don't you do a bit on that since that is your area of specialty Uh, Yeah, so the costume designers are Jacqueline West and Bob Morgan. You know, they're collaborators. Bob Morgan, I think, must be the junior collaborator because his IMDb is quite limited. Um, Whereas Jacqueline West has done numerous blockbusters, none of them particularly great, but like there's a very limited number of movies where you get to do genuinely interesting, meaty work like this one. And Landing Dune is really the jackpot. I loved so many of the costumes in this, like especially in kind of the first act where you get much more of a sense of um, the empire which is something that is mostly lingering in the background of the film so like you see people in like robes and stuff who are showing up um, at the first like meeting with the Atreides family but then like with the Atreides family they've designed these like very overtly western coded uniforms and kind of royal outfits you can like immediately tell what that's meant to be and then when you get to Arrakis the Fremen 
The main costumes that are like famous for Dune are the still suits, which is the kind of survival suits they wear. But also like there's so much like visual stuff going on here that makes it obvious that they are probably Saharan. There's a lot of like headscarf choices and robes and stuff, which are like practical choices for the desert, but like have very obvious ethnic coding that the costume designers talked about in their interviews. But like Denis Villeneuve and the other like top tier of the creative team have very clearly had like a PR strategy to just like not talk about this at all very carefully not talk about it um but yeah i mean the still suits were a really difficult design thing because like there's so many movies where people are wearing kind of body suits or whatever so they have to make something that like looks cool looks like it can function as a suit that recycles water and also can be worn by every single body type among the main cast <laughs> so it's like they did a really freaking good job on that so well done yeah um and that's the sort of thing that like as the audience you're not thinking about at all Unless you're like you. Um, <laughs> I think mostly what we're thinking, what my mother was thinking when she heard there was a new movie, which was, are they going to make them all wear black rubber suits again? Because that's the worst thing to wear in the desert. And I was like, yeah, they are going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but like, if it looks obviously awkward on someone, right? Mm-hmm. Like, then that will be noticeable to people. It's like cinematography. If something is just like the wrong choice, even if the audience doesn't really know anything about cinematography, like they're going to have some reaction of like, oh. In David Lynch's Dune, the still suits didn't look enormously different from this, but the key difference is they had these two like roll down panels on the chest where if you, if Cal McLaughlin wanted to roll down the windows to show everyone his nipples, he could do that. And there are publicity shots where the nipples are visible, (laughs) which is iconic. (laughs) I mean, if you need to, you know, feed a baby, then there you go. It's all ready. But let us move on. Uh, you were alluding to the sort of uh, Saharan influence on some of those costumes and the clear PR directive to just like not talk about some of this. The biggest controversy and sort of problem with this movie, which from the second they announced all the casting, people were like, hmm, this seems bad, was the almost total lack of actors from the Middle East and North Africa generated some talk on the internet and especially now that the movie has come out obviously there's been a lot of discussion of this um much of it highly critical which given the aesthetic of the movie particularly i would say the costumes though it obviously shows up in the production design as well and just like the language used right which is obviously from the book so many of the fremen terms are just like i mean they're literally they're literally arabic like (laughs) yeah and i think this is really interesting conversation to have because on the one side you have critics writing about this as like obviously this is racist which I agree with on the other side so I read a really long academic journal article which I'll talk about a bit in a moment really delving into like Herbert's own personal history and the genesis of these novels which provides perhaps like a different origin story for them like he never went to the Middle East he the specific sort of superficial cultural stuff that's in the books is referencing cultural things from that part of the world. But like, he didn't really know what the fuck he was talking about. So it's basically all a controversy around a a, like source text that is just fundamentally flawed and not originating in like a genuine depiction of a particular piece of culture but that also is like exploiting that culture so i feel like it's kind of like an mc escher staircase yeah you just kind of keep going around 
I mean, it is, yeah, there is, um, there is this writer named Harris Durrani who's written two articles kind of on this topic. Basically, they're kind of partly talking about it as an act of cultural appropriation, but partly it's like a defense. And so the first one he wrote is like, a very long piece in Tor.com, which I've not read all of because it was like very long, but it's kind of going into like the very complex kind of Muslim roots of a lot of both the world building and the story. In addition to like, obviously there was a lot of like, you know, Middle Eastern oil war stuff. Um, and then he wrote like a, a more digestible version of this article in the Washington Post, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, it's called The Novel Dune Had Deep Islamic Influences and the Movie Erases Them. So like what the film has done is like the most discussed part of this is the fact that there's no Middle Eastern or North African actors in the film, almost. But kind of the more complex version of that is that people who making who were making the film have made a really intentional choice to tone down as much of that world building as possible. But in some ways that makes it worse because while you can't have a movie in Hollywood in 2021 where Timothy Chalamet says, let's have a jihad, they've created this situation where all of those real world cultural references are extremely non-specific in a way that like a lot of people just find offensive and irritating, including like the fact that there's loads of different languages spoken in this movie. Like obviously it's predominantly English, but there is also, um, there's sign languages spoken, Mandarin is spoken. There's like a fictional language that's spoken by the Imperial troops. And all of those are subtitled. But then when you have the Arrakis language, which includes a lot of words that are literally Arabic, like people have watched this movie and be like, they're speaking Arabic. Those words aren't subtitled because that's like the foreigners. Like the bigger picture here is Hollywood's general dismal representation of Middle Eastern people who, when they appear on screen in American productions, virtually always playing a terrorist of some kind. This was obviously more the case in like the Bush era. And now it's just like, well, good luck getting a job at all. But it feels, I think, sort of particularly offensive in this case because it's not like there's all these other jobs that these actors could be getting because they just aren't available in in most cases. There obviously are some exceptions, but to me, the most sort of useful way to think about it is, as, which is the case with a lot of conversations of this type about Hollywood, is this like big structural problem that is kind of manifested yeah. in this particular movie. I also wanted to talk about this article that I read, which is by the academic Daniel Immerwar, which is in the Journal of American Studies. We will link to this, of course, along with everything else. Um, it's very long, but for an academic article, I found it pretty readable. And if people are interested in like the background of Dune and Frank Herbert, I would absolutely recommend it. Um, as I said, I have never read these books and I will definitely never read these books. But I'm now like totally fascinated by him and the origin of them. And the argument that Emmerwar basically makes, I think very persuasively, is that the real sort of genesis of these novels in terms of like the political background was not really an engagement with what was happening politically in the Middle East in like the mid 20th century, but rather Herbert's long and documented and clear relationships with 
Native American people in Washington State, where he grew up and lived for most of his life. So the um, Quileute, as I, I believe is how you pronounce the name of the tribe, there was some story he wrote when he was pretty young that is like a story about like a young white boy being like mentored and taught how to like be in nature by this like older Native American man. And this writer is like, on the one hand, this is obviously kind of self-aggrandizing and like playing into all of these like really unpleasant tropes about like a young white kid sort of being like taught the ways of nature by like a native person. On the other hand, this kind of did actually happen to Frank Herbert. Like he was very close to this older man in this tribe called Henry Martin, who I believe was an activist of some kind. I can't remember all the details, obviously, in this article. And this guy had a like profound effect on his life. So you see this pattern in a lot of the books and certainly in Dune where you have like a young white kid who then is like inducted into this like other sort of more exotic in quotes world, right? Which is clearly coming from some personal experience for him. He then goes on to work in Republican politics in the 1950s and is like stationed at various sort of imperial out, like American imperial outposts and kind of is buying in to like America as an empire. But there's also at least one example of him writing some review of a Jimmy Stewart Western and is like, this is incredibly racist. Which, as Emmerwar points out, for like a white guy to be writing that in the early 50s is like basically unheard of. Like that was not how anyone was discussing this at the time. And as the you know years pass, he becomes basically best friends with this environment, environmentalist Howard Hansen, who grew up on the Quileute Reservation in Washington, and he becomes more of an environmentalist himself, which obviously then influences Dune, which is in large part kind of a parable about environmentalism. And the theory that this academic has, and he has talked to Herbert's son extensively and, you know, looked at all the his papers, is that, like, so he writes, Herbert had never been to the Middle East or North Africa. He doesn't really write about the anti-colonial struggles of that area of the world in his nonfiction, which at the time, like, Algeria and France were at war. There was all of these, like, massive conflicts, and Herbert doesn't seem to be particularly interested in them. But at the same time, he said... The Fremen are inspired by Algerians and Bedouin. Oh, I'm I'm not saying that like there's no connection. Clearly, he's using literal Arabic terms in the fucking book. But the fact that his actual personal experience and like interest in these struggles is so much more rooted in this other thing. And the other distinction that he draws in this article is between what were known as like third world anti-colonial struggles, which would have been like powers in the Middle East that are kind of trying to become nation states and then like be on an equal playing field with other countries versus like the fourth world struggle of like indigenous people who are kind of like, can you just leave us the fuck alone? Which is way more how the Fremen are characterized. And throughout the Dune books, he maintains this kind of like patronizing view towards those characters where like on the one hand, he's like, yeah, colonialism is bad. But then, like, we're just going to keep having this emperor and, like, kind of just, like, goes back and (laughs) forth with it and, like, can never sort of make up his mind. And, I mean, again, this article I just found totally fascinating. It's not about the movie. It's just about the books. But reading it, I was just like, oh, right. These books are just fucking weird. They're coming from this man who, on the one hand, had certain beliefs that I think most of us would agree with. And then in other ways was just, like, a total weirdo and kind of 
a conservative. And simultaneously, like, psychedelics. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the drugs, obviously, a huge part of, of all of this. And so I completely think that they should just fucking cast some Middle Eastern actors in this movie, right? Like, that would have solved so many of the problems. But that trying to sort of, like, pin down what the, like, right version of Dune is, is impossible. My sense, having read this, is probably... And, like, he wrote other books in between the Dune books when the publisher was like, please send us another Dune. And he was like, you know what I'm going to do is write a, like, realist fiction novel about the struggles of the indigenous people in Washington. And they were like, just send us a Dune! He was like, (laughs) no. And it's like, they're like, wow, we really want to have like this book where someone like does incest with their own clone and gives birth to a sandworm, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And then obviously he was like, he clearly was fascinated by these cultures in the Middle East or else he wouldn't have written the book in this way. But it strikes me that that's way more superficial than this other stuff, which is also offensive, right? Like the whole thing is just like this mess. And I Definitely think that the movie could have made certain choices that were different and better in handling the mess, but also that, like, the decision to adapt this at all is inevitably going to lead to just, like, bad places on on certain fronts. Because, what the fuck? Like, it just, like, doesn't... Yeah, one of the suggestions I've seen is sort of, like, in the next film, obviously, they're going to cast new characters, and if they cast, like, Middle Eastern actors as like the imperial family that'd be like an interesting choice because obviously you can't just go and cast like middle eastern actors as the fremen because then you end up with like this other like weird situation but you know it's one of these things where the important thing is just like hiring people across the board in different departments and obviously that didn't happen yeah but you should talk about the music which is also tied into yeah all of this (laughs) my most in-depth music analysis ever i think yeah the one thing i wrote about dune in a professional capacity is like an article about the music uh, which should be up by the time this episode goes out so the composer here is hans zimmer who is like one of the top five composers in hollywood he specializes in blockbusters his style is obviously he does like a wide variety of musical styles but like he kind of does combinations of electronic music and sound effects and also kind of symphony orchestras. So very different from something like John Williams for Star Wars, whose music for those movies is literally like listening to a late 19th or early 20th century symphony where the orchestra is just an experience the the audience is having, which is meant to elicit certain emotions and like evoke different characters and themes. Whereas the music in Dune is kind of heavily integrated into the world of the movies. So there's a lot of parts where the kind of music almost feels like a sound effect. There's two scenes where music actually happens on screen. There's the bagpipe scene, which is incredible and talked about a great deal for very obvious reasons. And there's also a scene where he has a Tuvan throat singing on screen. And it's kind of an interesting intro to the way this film, like, racializes certain things and doesn't do that for other things because the bagpipes are really obviously Scottish. The Atreides family come from a planet named Caladan, which is like Caledonia, which is the word for Scotland. The place where they shoot that looks really Scottish and they use these sort of British-ish military uniforms and these bagpipes, which like Denis Villeneuve specifically singles out as like, oh, we picked these because it feels sort of like militaristic and imperialist. And then 
with the Sardaukar warriors. So they're like, let's just choose this style of music, which is just like completely quote unquote alien to the Western audience. And it's like completely detached from any concept of it being Mongolian. But like the main thrust of this article I wrote is more about the Middle Eastern influences of the music, which once again is something that Hans Zimmer has not even like touched upon in the many promotional interviews he did for this movie. He's spoken a lot about kind of the complexity of the synth music that he did and like they built loads of cool new instruments and scrap metal and he went to the desert and listened to the way sound is and you know the resulting soundtrack is very similar to a lot of other musical scores he does because he has quite a distinctive uh, style as as a composer. But The end result is this score where there's a lot of kind of abstract synth soundscapes for kind of desert scenes and like spaceship stuff. And then for Arrakis and the Fremen specifically, there is this incredibly obvious Middle Eastern motif, which is like instantly recognisable to anyone in the audience and kind of like is edging into the sort of, this feels like weird and uncomfortable zone where the kind of the main instruments are, there's like a percussion thing. And then the most notable things are there's like a woodwind and there is vocals. And the woodwind is an instrument named the duduk, an Armenian instrument. And the vocals are by an American singer named Loire Kotler, who has kind of invented this fusion music style, which combines traditional Jewish vocal techniques, Middle Eastern songs, and like South Indian percussion and vocal patterns. So it's this like hodgepodge of different styles. And she's worked with Hans Zimmer several times. And Hans Zimmer has also used the duduk on several occasions. And this instrument, it's basically Hollywood's shorthand for exotic Middle Eastern locations. It also appears in a lot of sci-fi and fantasy movies. And I was intrigued because I was like, okay, I've heard this instrument a lot of times. It sounds kind of like a clarinet or an oboe. It's a woodwind instrument. And it always plays these kind of harmonic minor melodies, which sound recognizably Middle Eastern to Western ears, but like not necessarily pinned down on anything because obviously this is a sci-fi film. So like, I found a composer who had first-hand knowledge of all this. I interviewed this guy named Omar Fidel, who works in a lot of Middle Eastern films and also a lot of American films and has classical training in Middle Eastern traditions and also makes stuff for like rando sitcoms or whatever. And he was like, okay, I use the duduk, but also before I went into American film music, I'd never even heard of this instrument. It's like this really old Armenian instrument, which like technically was used in loads of places and is closely related to a lot of other woodwinds. But like, it kind of seems like Hans Zimmer was like a key person to popularize this instrument. And like after 9-11, suddenly Hollywood was like exploding with like millions of movies and TV shows that required there to be a recognizable soundtrack for Arab terrorists. And what you would have there is like a synth underlayer. And then you'd have either a duduk or a solo violin doing this music, which like the audience immediately recognizes as like Arab music. And also the female wailing vocal pattern. I found like literally an article with this woman who is a specialist in sort of Persian vocals. And she was like, yeah, I've had a really lucrative career recently. And I feel really upset about that because they're always making me like sing death to Americans. (laughs) So it's like this really (laughs) uncomfortable job that she has. Um, But for this movie, they did not hire a Middle Eastern singer. They hired this woman, Loire Kotler. And to me, like the way this music was constructed is like completely fits in with the entire creative vision for this movie where they want to like have their cake and eat it too. So like they've not done anything specific. They've not like researched anything that feels culturally direct, like anything that feels like authentic intentionally because they don't want it to be authentic. They want it to be like quote unquote alien. And 
they've ended up with something which like sounds kind of racist and is very familiar within racist American tropes, even though it's not something that's really aggressive. So it like it it's in this like weird ethical gray zone and it's such a small detail that it's not something there's ever going to be like a moral uproar about it's like oh he used the deduke like it's not actually like a thing (laughs) but the more you think about it the more you're just like you put so much work into this and you were all on like a media blackout to like never discuss any of the cultural appropriation elements of this at all (laughs) yeah i mean to me the music is a perfect like encapsulation of what's going on in this movie in that I you had previewed for me before I saw the film your like ire about this and that you were writing like a magnum opus about the, <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> but I obviously know much less about music than you do. And so when I was listening and the sort of like wailing woman stuff, I was like, oh right, of course. Looks like that's very recognizable. Like I have heard that in other things, and like it's a pretty clear signifier. But like I think the music in this is pretty incredible. It sounds amazing. But it also has this problem, right? And the whole movie is like that. It's amazing. I loved it, as I said. Like, I would definitely recommend this to basically anybody. Like, I had a fantastic time, especially in terms of just, like, being in a movie theater and having this, like, sensory experience. At the same time, like, buried within this, or not even buried, like, it's pretty close to the fucking surface, they're very obvious problems. And I think it's just totally subjective how you're going to react in terms of, like, whether you can be like, well, <laughs> that kind of is what it is, or it might really bother you. And like, I don't think there's any right or wrong response. It's just kind of going to happen one way or the other, right? I'm really glad it's making so much money just because like the theaters really need it right now. So like, that's great. And I'm glad they're making a second one because this is not a complete thing. Like it is clearly just like part one. And there is a lot that's really worthy. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm excited to film for film too. And I hope to God that they've like listened to some of the criticism and like, if they can find some way to like ameliorate that element, it will go like so far. Right. Because it's a combination of like the property, as I said, being just so inherently flawed that there are always going to be some problems. And in an attempt to kind of just evade them, they've made certain things worse right? Or like, just kind of ignored certain stuff that probably could be fixable and then not (laughs) done that. And like, I don't think there's any way to completely fix this based on having seen a couple of the movies and read about it. Like, it's just a morass. But some good faith effort to do so would go a long way, I think. Yeah, we're excited for the film where Zendaya gets stuff to do, because... Yeah, I mean, it's just very funny how much promo Zendaya does for this, because obviously Zendaya, queen of promo, but like for 80% of this film, she appears just like occasionally in dream sequences, looking like she's filming a perfume commercial. And then right at the end, she comes in and like does her thing and is a character. And then we will- She also gets the first line of the movie where she explains (laughs) the theme of the film, which in a very effective way. I mean, I had seen so many headlines being like, Zendaya isn't in this movie at all. That by the time I saw it, I was like, you know, she's actually got a got a scene at the end. <laughs> and like, crucially, we like, all recognize Zendaya. It is one where you know you need like a huge famous actress because if it's just some random person, you're like, well, I guess she's fine. But we're all like, Zendaya, Zendaya, <laughs> or at least I. Am. I mean, maybe I'm secretly Gen Z. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that character also in the Lynch movie has like about the same amount of screen time as 
Zendaya does in this film. And that's the whole thing. And it's terrible. So I have, based on the fact that she signed on, based on how much they promoted her, like, I'm pretty confident that she's going to have a much more substantial role than in the previous film version. So I think that will be a lot of fun. And I mean, Lady Jessica is in this movie way more than she is in the Lynch one, too. So like, I think they were thinking about that stuff. Yeah. So we'll see what part two has in store. And Villeneuve wants to make Dune Messiah, which is the sequel, which is the one where everything goes really badly. (laughs) Well, like, yeah, a couple of my best friends are like Dune heads. And every anytime they mention anything from the later books, I'm just like, I crave a film of this. It's like the most absurd, off the wall, should never have been published, offensive, bizarre, sexual ideas. I <laughs> didn't even have can't do it because it's like he's not like they fun. have to stop. <laughs> they have to stop after after Dune Messiah. <laughs> The later books are like Paul turns into a sandworm. Like, I just don't, like... I do love the idea of there being, like, like five clones of Jason Momoa, like, sequentially. It's like, once you've seen him, you're like, yeah, I do get why they want to just keep cloning new ones. Like, he's a piece of renewable resource. Like, we all want more Jason Momoa. (laughs) Uh, But, like, I would... It would be really interesting to see what Legendary and WB do with that sequel because like as i said based on my very superficial knowledge is pretty fucked up and dark and this like they don't love that um, i mean they're so fucking expensive but at the same time in a climate where avatars two three four and five can be made allegedly then i can see a studio pouring money into dune and right now like warner brothers has the fantastic beasts franchise very true the one final thing i will say that i was thinking about a lot watching it is um obviously it's like insulting to even compare this film to the marvel movies on like every single level because it is a work of art as opposed to the marvel films which are not but i think probably one part of the reason i mean this is a phenomenon this movie is just like doing insanely well people are talking about it in a like all of the And also place. it's like Lord of the Rings where there's all these dads who read the book 50 years yes. ago. And you've got the like young people who just want to see Timothy Chalamet, right? So like it's appealing to a lot of different populations, but like people die in this movie and they're dead. And then like there are actual consequences to stuff. And then the story moves on as opposed to, I think m- most blockbusters these days especially the marvel movies where there are just no stakes right because everything's just gotta keep going forever and i strongly suspect that part of the reason this movie is so popular even if people aren't consciously thinking in these terms is that like it actually feels real and there's like real drama yeah i i think eternals which is actually a movie where people die because like they have like 10 spare characters they can kill some off but like eternals is really gonna suffer for being out at the same time as this film. Like, it's not... They fucked that It's up. not good. Like, it's definitely yeah. the worst reviewed of the Marvel movies. I don't think it's the worst. I think it's just getting worse reviews because people have Marvel fatigue and it's bad in a different way to, like, Doctor Strange, which was just, like, offensive on multiple levels. But, like, it's... It's dreary. I, I mean, we don't... This is not an Eternals podcast, but, like... <laughs> ugh, God. No, I think you're really right, though. But, like... That I think that movie's not going to do well at the box office, and it's so telling that like this movie, which is actually good, is the thing that everyone wants to see, right? Like, whereas Marvel's put out three movies this year, and it's too many, frankly. Like, at a certain point, people just want something else, and if there's an 
alternative option that is actually a good movie starring a bunch of really exciting famous people. Obviously, the cast of Eternals has big stars too, but it's not surprising to me that this is the one that's the hit. So maybe there will be some positive lessons learned by Hollywood. Ha ha ha. Next week, we will finally (laughs) be talking about the North Water, uh, which we have delayed for several weeks now because new stuff was happening. If people have missed our previous mentions, this was a miniseries that came out uh, over the summer here in the fall in the UK um, about a doomed group of Arctic whalers. As as every group of people who went to the Arctic in the 19th century in fiction, they're always doomed. Don't do it. Yeah, bad idea. Starring uh, Jack O'Connell and Colin Farrell and directed by Andrew Haig, who directed Weekend, 45 Years, and many episodes of the TV show Looking. One of my favorite things that I've watched this year, very dark, but very good. And I believe you liked it quite a bit too. Yeah. So, And I respect when a TV show ends every episode with a sea shanty. Yeah. <laughs> Colin Farrell, very scary. Yeah. This is like one of the show. most unrelentingly grim things I've actually enjoyed. Well, it's extremely grim, but crucially, I do not think it is nihilistic, which to me is an important distinction, but we can get into the details of that next week. So if you want to check that out before next time, that's available on AMC Plus in the US and iPlayer in the UK, right? Yep. And if you would like to support us on Patreon, our Patreon is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me uh, on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and I will link to my Dune article in the show notes. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.